This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where each week we preview and review the big market and business stories with Oanda Senior Market Analyst Craig Earlham. And it's a very good morning to Craig. How are you doing? I'm really good, mate. How are you? Excellent. It's been a crazy week, hasn't it? Uh, the political situations on both sides of the Atlantic are almost bizarre in the extreme. How have they affected or how could they affect markets? Yeah, it's been really bizarre, actually. You, you sometimes, it, it, in the situation we're in right now, it almost feels normal. And that in itself is incredibly weird. Uh, The fact that you can have impeachment proceedings begin against the US president in the same week that the prime minister is deemed to have acted unlawfully by the Supreme Court and you've got opposition calls for him to resign as a result all in the same week, and it doesn't feel that odd. Um, so yeah, it's been really, it's been really bizarre. In terms of the markets, the markets kind of reflect what I've just said. Uh, when the impeachment proceedings began, they sold off a little bit because it was this kind of risk aversion, like how do we take this, what do we do? Naturally, that lends itself to a little bit of risk aversion in the markets. And then they settled down really quite quickly and we moved on. Um, the the Supreme Court ruling got a bit of a, a buy in the pound um, because, again, it's just seemed to make it that much harder for Boris Johnson to deliver no deal, especially if he is considering acting unlawfully again um, in order to do so. But also because Parliament's sitting again, it gives them more opportunity to stop no deal. So the pound got a bit of a boost, but nothing hugely significant. Like I say, really bizarre week. Uh, and the markets kind of reflect the fact this kind of nonchalant, meh, it's just another week in Boris and Donald. It's bizarre. Perhaps it's because both of these characters seem to have a sort of Teflon to them, don't they? Bounce back ability, they used to call it. And despite the fact that uh, Trump is probably going to be impeached, the Democrats attempting that at the moment, despite the fact that Boris Johnson has the entire opposition against him on a variety of levels, moral and otherwise, they seem to bounce back. And a lot of the reason for that is their base, their economic and social base is kind of behind them still. And you feel that whatever happens, as long as they've got that 35, 40% base behind them going forward in a possible election, of course, unless Trump is no longer the president, and Boris Johnson in an election in the next few weeks or so, that they will survive. Yeah, again, it is this really weird scenario whereby the rules don't seem to apply uh, to either of them, both in terms of what is normal, what would normally uh force you to at least consider resigning but also what you're punished for because you don't feel like either of these are going to be punished at the polls uh given what we've just uh seen and heard um but then we are also in a scenario whereby i think both of them know what they're doing both of them know that their limitations are far greater than the limitations of past presidents and prime ministers because of the situations that they're dealing with and ultimately, no matter what he says, no matter what he does, and no matter how unlawful he's deemed to be acting as far as Boris Johnson's concerned, if you are a Brexiteer and you voted Brexit, 
you're not judging him based on his character. You're not judging him based on what he's done, uh, whether you agree with that or not. You're judging him based on how hard is he trying to deliver Brexit. And therefore, he doesn't have to play by the usual rule book that others uh, would be forced to play by. So, like I say, it, it does create this really random situation that we're in right now where if these characters are as marmite as you can possibly imagine a president and a prime minister to be you literally either loathe the person or you love him and that that, that they are very much feeding that uh that, that 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 belief you're feeding that narrative because they believe that as long as you're creating a strong emotion within people whether it's liking or loathing tends to work in your favour. And, I mean, once the Prime Minister, the the President. Who's to tell them they're wrong? You said that it's not really affected markets a huge amount. What about the pound and the dollar? Uh, we're looking at a potential no deal again. That was seemingly off the table uh, a few weeks ago, but there's talk about Boris Johnson getting around uh, the Ben bill and actually going through with a no-deal on October the 31st if you can't force an agreement with the EU. Has that affected the pound at all? Because it doesn't seem to. Yeah, I mean, you look at the pound in the last couple of days and it has come off, but, I mean, it had also rebounded higher prior to that from 123 to 126, so now we're back at around 123. So we're kind of in that halfway house, really, between the recent lows and highs, probably just steadying itself. These markets don't just find a level and stick to it. They do move around, so... It's not entirely surprising. The In terms of Johnson trying to get around the Ben Bill, yeah, I mean, John Major, the former Prime Minister uh, from the early 90s, he, um, he has already basically talked about a way in which Johnson could look to get around the Ben Bill, highlighting it so that Parliament can try and stop him doing that and hopefully the courts can stop him doing that as far as John Major is concerned. And um, so it's clearly something he's considering. I think Boris has wanted to create this image of himself that isn't entirely accurate though i i mean i may be proven wrong and i've been proven wrong plenty of times in the past especially about mention, brexit yeah. i can mention every single time yeah exactly <laughs> although theresa may still may get that deal through um <laughs> but i do I, I genuinely don't believe he wants no deal i genuinely don't I believe he wants thing. to break the law yeah. um but he has to be that person in order to be taken seriously in his eyes and get another alternative deal um so the only reason i think no deal doesn't happen is because i genuinely don't think he wants it to happen but then if you are going to make these threats come the 31st of october you've got to make a decision if the eu doesn't back down you've got to make a decision do i deliver no deal and potentially cause a decade's worth of damage to the tory party if uh, no deal is as bad as people fear or do i resign hold my head in shame be called on the bluff fold my cards effectively and be remembered as the guy who took a big gamble, failed and had to resign shamefully. The theory with the EU is that they always blink. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what they're basing this whole idea on really, isn't it? It's uh, leaving it to to, to one second to midnight even and eventually they'll come to some kind of arrangement. We are running out of time and we could accidentally fall into no deal because I'm with you on this one, Craig. I don't believe that... Even the ERG who say, mm-hmm. the European Research Group, who say that they think that no deal would be you know, better than a bad deal, I don't think they believe that either. I think it's all about pushing the negotiations to the nth degree. And 
Boris Johnson has to say that he'll get around the Ben Bill because otherwise the EU will just go, well, there's no point in negotiating with you because, you know, we're not going to have a no deal anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I completely agree with everything you've just said. And let's face it, a lot of deals are done at the last minute. The, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the best deal. It doesn't necessarily mean that the best decisions are made then. But how many times in the last decade have we heard about European leaders sat around the table till four or five o'clock in the morning, having not eaten, not slept, not done anything, and... Well, the Greek crisis, a, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. Making a last-minute decision just to avert a crisis. So, yeah, I, I do believe that deadlines are needed. And this is, I think this is where the difficulties lie with this entire process, in that Boris Johnson wants to create, like, say, this image of himself. The uh, Remainers uh, and the opposition parties want to create that image of him as well because they want him to be viewed as being irresponsible and taking us over the cliff edge intentionally and wanting no deal because it it, it, it creates this kind of uh, opposition in, within their own supporter base. So it kind of suits everyone for him to have this image um, of, of, of this person who's going to take us over the threshold. Um, but... It leaves us in a situation where you don't really know what's going to happen as a result. Like, I don't think anyone still really knows what comes next. We're five weeks until the 1st of November. And I think the next five weeks could just be wild because mm. I just don't know what's going to happen. I've got a few ideas on what could happen. But I think the big problem, though, for Boris Johnson now is with the last 48 hours and the atmosphere in uh, the House of Commons amongst uh, both sides... Uh, of the divide, he's lost any chance, perhaps, of getting some of those Labour MPs, those Brexiting, Brexiteer Labour MPs, onto his side to actually pass that deal, because they now feel very, very strongly about the Joe Cox comments, mm -hmm. etc. And it's almost as if that middle ground has gone. Well, now he needs to get a deal. Now he needs to... to... Get a deal, but they still, it still has to be voted through, though. It does, but... He's banked for so long on alternative arrangements, which he believes can get around the, the, the get, can get around this issue. The problem is, I can't help but feel that if these alternative arrangements were did exist, they were feasible and they were implementable, that this would have been agreed already. Steve Baker, who is also a member of the ERG, said, it must be six, 12 months ago now, we proposed this to the EU and they were on board. It was Theresa May that didn't want them. Well, that's all well and good, but to, uh, Boris Johnson's been Prime Minister for a while now. He's put these propositions to the EU, and while they've said that there may be something to work on, there has been absolutely no sign that either side believes that they are implementable. Because if they had put something to the EU that the EU has rejected just for the sake of rejecting it, which is very much the image that they would love to project the EU as being, as being unreasonable... Then, they, then Boris Johnson and his team would have been very heavy on the PR side talking about these implementable plans that they use just rejecting for the sake of it. Therefore, we have to no deal to get away from this. But neither side has been doing that, which makes me think that if Boris Johnson is saving the details of this for late in the day, then even he must know that this is flawed. Um, but again, where does that actually leave us? Because we're in a situation whereby the only feasible way of leaving on the 31st of October is either with Theresa May's deal or with no deal, which is, again, uh, I, 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 I've, I conceded defeat on the Theresa May deal thing <laughs> six months ago. Yeah, she's gone. But I, I fear <laughs> I, I may actually be proven right 
unintentionally and accidentally. What, the ERG are going to vote with Theresa May's deal? No, but Labour may vote Theresa May's deal to stop no deal. Um, I don't think so. They may see it as the lesser of two evils. I mean, again... Who knows? I'm sure would, probably not, and I'm sure something ridiculous is going to happen. But Do you know what? It would make sense for Labour to go with a deal because once that is done, there'll be an election. And one of the big weapons that the Conservative Party, and more importantly, Boris Johnson has, is Brexit. Mm-hmm. Once Brexit is, dare I say, sorted out, let's just say that the, the, there's an agreement, um, we've still got to do the rest of it for the next 10 years or so, yeah. but once... Once that's sorted out, his his weapon within an election sphere has gone. And uh, people might start to say, well, OK, the Tories muck this up. We've had three and a half, four years of hell. Let's give somebody else a chance to do it, even if it is Jeremy Corbyn. And that's yeah. when markets are going to get spooked. Can you imagine an election whereby Jeremy Corbyn is telling everyone that they delivered Brexit as well rather than yeah. Boris. Well, Boris voted possible. against the deal and we delivered. Yeah. I mean, it, it, all of a sudden, everything seems to have turned on its head. Yeah. Um, and again, you, you, you're talking about a planned backfiring on Boris Johnson. But again, I just it, it's really difficult to tell. I, from one week to the next, I'm constantly, and everyone is constantly being surprised by what is unfolding. We must talk about uh, President Trump a, a little before we move on to sort of more economic and businessy market uh, type stories. Uh, but um, how much danger is Trump in at the moment? None. I really don't think he's in that much danger. Why are they doing it? The Democrats, this, this is going to be a problem going forward for an election because, again, it keeps his base, doesn't it, by attacking Trump and accusing him of stuff that probably won't stick. So I feel there's probably two sides to this. I feel like there's probably going to be some Democrats who felt like they couldn't fight impeachment anymore, that there actually is grounds here within this phone conversation that says he is clearly, while he may not have explicitly stated it, they are thinking he has clearly made a quid pro quo here. He has clearly indicated, or at least made clear without saying so, that we've withdrawn this this military aid by the way dollars. i need you to investigate my political opposition for yeah. the next for next year's or the likely political opposition for next year's election uh, and repeatedly stressed it it doesn't need to be explicitly said for it to be perfectly clear um so they feel like we have to at least go with this because if we don't then we're effectively deciding that the rule book doesn't exist for donald trump that it would for others um and there's plenty of Democrats who've been calling for impeachment for a long time. So there's going to be some who are reluctantly going along with this because they feel like they do not have a choice. There is also the other side of it as well, uh, in that impeachment is very unlikely to get through the Senate. You need a two-thirds majority in the Senate to for the impeachment to be passed, and the Senate is Republican uh, uh, majority held. So, therefore, it's not going to pass. So what really is the benefit of this? Well, how much damage did the email... Uh, story due to Hillary Clinton's presidential chances. It, it tarnished her without proof and without being found guilty. It tarnished her enough that it cost her the election um, in many people's eyes. So the, perhaps the Democrats are looking at this given the opportune moment, given the fact that we are a year from the election, and saying, do you know what? It may not pass, but it will put it in people's minds that he has tried to use US aid that had been passed by the US government for the benefit of Ukraine, but also for the benefit of the US. And he tried to use it for a personal gain. And if you plant that seed ahead of an election, you may not upset his base. You may not force his base to vote uh, for a democratic alternative. But the swing voters in the swing states 
you may be able to at least plant the seed that this is not someone who's fighting for you, this is someone who's fighting for himself. And maybe they think that that is something that could potentially swing the election. So it's it's all mm. politics. I think it's going to strengthen him, actually, myself. But uh, Within his base, but they're not going to yeah. vote any differently anyway. Yeah. Let's move on to uh, oil. And uh, after talk of all those, uh, that mini oil crisis following those attacks on the Saudi ref- refineries, the price of oil is now stabilised, not just stabilised, fallen back to near pre-attack levels. Surprising, isn't it, how quickly normal service was resumed? It's incredible, actually. Um, there's pretty much no risk premium now being priced in. We've got um, we've got Brent crude, which is, like I said, I think it's around 3.5% above where it was prior to the attack. This is something that spiked 20% mm. on the actual attack itself. Um, and, yeah, it, it seems to be based upon the fact that the Saudis have pretty much got most of... Uh, the the facilities back online, uh, and they will over the next few days. They say have full facilities back online, uh, and while there may be some that may take some damage that may take months to resolve, it's not going to affect their overall output um, by the end of the month. So therefore, the market says, well, if there's no effect on long-term output, then it should be no problem. But the problem is, from my perspective, is it's kind of complacent to not have any risk factor priced into the markets because. These are facilities that were clearly vulnerable, which is why they were attacked in the first place by 10 drones. Um, therefore, unless something has dramatically changed, they are probably vulnerable to further attacks. We haven't seen an escalation yet uh, in this in the Middle East, in, uh, in Iran, even though the US and now the UK, Germany, France have all said that Iran was to blame for the drone attacks. Um, we haven't seen any escalation yet, but that doesn't mean we won't. Um, and that doesn't mean that we won't see again more uh, uh, more retaliations uh, and further escalation in the region. So I think it's strange that prices have dropped back to where they have. But we we have seen complacency in the markets before, and I feel like, well, that's exactly what we're seeing again. Okay, not a huge amount of data next week, Craig, although we do have the latest PMI figures. What are you expecting? Yeah, so these are actually revised in many cases. So we had the PMIs last week, and these are the revised figures. But in, as far as the Europe, Europe's concerned, last week we got the Eurozone, the German and the French, uh, whereas now we get the Italian, the Spanish, etc. as well. So we get the full range. Um, so we're not expecting massive revisions, but it is an interesting one because th- this is, especially in the manufacturing side, this is something that's been in contraction territory for the entirety of this year in the Eurozone in Germany. Germany's on on, on the brink of recession. Um, there's talk of Europe being on the brink of recession. And you've got these PMIs whereby not only is the manufacturing numbers deep in contraction territory, in Germany very deep in contraction territory, the worst since the global financial crisis, but the services sector is weakening as well. And that's the worry because the services industry in most countries is greater, is larger than the manufacturing. So it's kind of this uh, scenario where you were like, I know the manufacturing is bad, but at least it's a small proportion of the economy. Now that it's spreading to the services, the pessimism, uh, that's when it becomes more dangerous for the economy. So we're looking for further signs that that is actually what is what we are uh, seeing and that recessions are a realistic forecast. Why is the German economy into such trouble at the moment? And going back to Brexit... They could certainly do without any no-deal scenario or even any sort of bad deal scenario because, you know, uh, 
to talk, I sound like Nigel Farage about the German car industry, but they are pretty much reliant, and uh, not not totally reliant, but it's they have a big stake in you know British car sales. That would make it even worse, wouldn't it? Yeah, the timing is certainly not ideal. Uh, I forget the exact number, but around it's more than forty percent of the mm. German economy, which is disproportionately large compared to other countries, is uh, is driven by uh, trade. Uh, exports and the uh, car manufacturing is a massive part of that. Germany's been hit from all sides at the moment. So for years, they've been lauded for the fact that they've got a very diverse economy, the fact that they're not just dependent on the banking sector, the fact they're not just dependent on services, or the fact they're not just dependent on manufacturing, the fact that they're so diversified. But it seems like everything's been hit recently. So the car manufacturing, they've been hit by the emissions testing Mm. standards, which had a significant effect. We've had um, subsidies in China uh, on cars uh, have been removed, uh, which has massively hit uh, purchases of uh, of cars in China, new cars in China, and Germany is a is a large exporter of cars to China. So that's had a massive impact also on their auto industry. Then you've got the trade war uh, and the threats from Trump to uh, impose tariffs on German cars. So again, that's had an impact again on the car industry. Um, but then generally, we've had a, an economic slowdown globally, so that impacts trade. We've seen all the trade numbers uh, have perfectly highlighted that. China is slowing naturally anyway, and again, China is a massive trade partner for uh, Germany so that's hit it as well. Europe's generally slowing down, which again hits Germany um, uh, as well. Uh, and then Brexit, uh, of course, yeah. is a UK's a big trade partner for Germany. So it's all of these factors all happening at the same time as mean, means that we're now looking at Germany looking at recession. It's a perfect uh, Deutsche Storm, isn't it, really? It is. I don't know why they call it the perfect storm. It sounds pretty imperfect to me. But yeah. Brexit would just, as you said, would make it even worse, really. Surely Angela Merkel can have a word with uh, Messrs Juncker et al to try and get a deal. So, yeah, it, it's very much the, uh, the the icing on the cake uh, of Brexit for Germany. But you've got to look at this situation. You can look at it in the short term or you can look at it in the long term. They want to avoid a recession, sure. But they can stimulate the economy with fiscal stimulus if they want to in order to try and generate some growth. And avoid a deep recession, um, especially in the event of Brexit. But what's more important to them? Preserving near-term growth or preserving the integrity of the Eurozone, its borders, its trade, uh, its rules, because it's a rules-based organisation. The project. Exactly. Um, And their eyes, that supersedes anything and everything. And therefore, no, I don't think Angela Merkel is going to lean on it. That was one of the... Sounds like a cult. Yeah, I mean, but it's just a rules-based organisation, yeah, yeah, and the sure. moment you start to lack, the moment you start to uh, ease up on those rules, then everything is in jeopardy, and that is that is very much how they see it, and that that's why when the argument was made back in 2016 that Europe will definitely cut us a good trade deal because we have a trade deficit with them, and therefore they stand to lose more mm. than we do. Well, that idea is fine in theory, but the reality is, how, what does Europe? Uh, pri- uh, prioritise more? Do they prioritise trade or do they, they pri- prioritise the project? Mm. And they will prioritise the project over absolutely everything. That's not to say that we can't get a good trade deal at the end of this, but this idea that because we've run a, we, we run a deficit with them that they will therefore bend isn't true. They very much do prioritise their project, their rules and their organisation above all else. Finally, uh, last but uh, not least, next Friday we're going to see the latest jobs figures from the United States. Uh, Non-farm 
payroll. It's been a bit of a roller coaster over the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. uh, Trump could do with a bit of good news, couldn't he? He could, but and this is generally the report where he gets it. That the, the, the labour market is one of the areas that we've not seen any weakness so far uh, in the US. We've got unemployment at 3.7%. We've seen steady jobs growth throughout. Um, uh, and we're expecting more of the same uh, from this from from, the, from this data. And also earnings as well, which is the one that people tend to focus on from an inflation standpoint, has been pretty strong as well in, in the US. So this is, like I say, this is the one report that I'm sure Donald Trump looks forward to more than any other each month. And uh, I don't expect him to be, any, to be particularly disappointed. If we did see disappointing figures, then that will naturally feed the narrative that we're slowing down and the Fed has to cut interest rates. So, so that's where this becomes really interesting in that the Fed's cut interest rates twice already. They've signaled that they're reluctant to do so again and that they're willing to wait and see the data. And markets are, uh, are, are pricing uh, accordingly as a result of that. Then there's kind of like 50-50 that we'll see a rate cut at the uh, at the next meeting, but still strong that we'll see another rate cut this year. Um, but if we saw a bad jobs report uh, and it's it suggested that we're seeing weakness spreading now to the labour market, I, I I expect that those odds would shift dramatically in favour of a rate cut at the next meeting. Okay, well we don't know where we're going to be are this time next week after the last few days. Who knows? It's been an incredible time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.